This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 141 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. Skeptics of the science of reading claim that the current push for evidence-based reading instruction is just another pendulum swing. Yet if you look at the research, we haven't so much been swinging as much as we've been building, evolving, and expanding on what we know about how we learn to read. Even though the science of reading is trending as I'm recording this episode, there are still many kids without access to quality instruction, and part of that has to do with teacher preparation programs and professional development available to teachers. Those responsible for teaching reading need to know how effective instruction looks, and they also need to be able to spot ineffective practices that actually encourage students to read poorly. 
That's why I invited Melanie Brether to the DeFacto Leaders podcast to talk about her personal and professional transformation as a special education teacher and literacy advocate. Melanie Brether is a full-time resource teacher from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, is an advocate for dyslexia awareness and the science of reading. And her deep commitment to this cause was sparked by her son's dyslexia diagnosis at the age of nine, which ignited a personal mission to understand dyslexia and support her and her students. Motivated by her son's journey, Melanie embarked on extensive research and training, achieving Orton-Gillingham Associate Level Certification, became a Siri Structured Literacy Classroom Teacher, and won the Nessie Dyslexia Aware Teacher of the Year Award in 2023. She gives presentations to colleagues, teachers, and parents on dyslexia and the science of reading. Driven to help others facing similar challenges, Melanie established Decoding Dyslexia Quebec, a grassroots movement dedicated to training awareness and providing support. In addition, she launched Soar with Dyslexia on social media, offering resources and information to teachers and parents navigating the complexities of dyslexia and the science of reading. Melanie also volunteers for Dyslexia Canada, lending her support to parents on this difficult journey and is a board member of the Teachers for Reading Canada, which offers free Orton-Gillingham training to Canadian teachers. In this conversation, we discuss what are the ineffective reading strategies that are taught in teacher education programs and why do they encourage kids to be poor readers? And can you assume someone has expertise in reading curriculum just because they have an advanced degree? And why do educated people promote methods that don't work? We also talk about common objections to the science of reading, such as things like, but why do some of my students seem to learn reading naturally? And then we wrap up by talking about how teachers and clinicians can make change from the bottom up when top-down changes aren't happening fast enough. Before we get going, I wanted to talk about Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, my program for SLPs who want to create a system for language therapy. The creation of this program was inspired by my doctoral work, which was inspired by my experience as a school SLP, where I was responsible for delivering language interventions to students in the school systems. And I had a similar experience to Melanie where I had to figure out what exactly am I supposed to do to support kids who are struggling to read. So obviously, if you are in a position where you are providing supplemental support, the question you might be asking yourself is, can I actually make a dent in all of these skills that my students need to build in order to be successful? And my response to that is, Effective language therapy really should focus on those language strands of the reading rope. We want to figure out where we can fill in that missing piece and that gap that's going to support all the other things that are happening. And I found that many clinicians need to get clear on what their role is and what they need to do when they have a student in front of them. And once they do that, they can get a lot of clarity on the other things they can do to be a leader on their team. Because, no, you can't make a dent in all of those things in just 30 minutes a week if there isn't a robust reading curriculum in place. But you do need to start somewhere 
in your personal and professional journey. And so what I recommend doing is first coming up with your own personal operating procedures and your system for supporting that language strand of the reading rope. And once you get clear on that and get an idea of the big picture of what needs to be happening for kids when it comes to supporting their literacy skills, you can expand on that and you can do something similar to what Melanie did where she not only focused on what she could be doing with her students, but she also focused on how she could be a leader on her team and start educating others. And that's where you can start making a dent in some of those other things that need to be happening for kids outside your therapy room. So to learn more about Language Therapy Advance Foundations, if you are a speech pathologist or if you are someone who is involved in those language-based interventions and you want to learn how you can support vocabulary and syntax that is going to help kids to comprehend what they're reading and really support their literacy skills, definitely check out the program. You can go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy to learn more. Now, please enjoy this conversation with Melanie Brether. Today, I am joined by Melanie Brether, an elementary resource teacher and literacy advocate. So thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. Well, um, you have a very interesting story and some great background. So I thought we could start off by having you just share um, your journey and how that's led to the work that you're doing now. Well, I've been teaching. This is, I believe, my 19th year as an elementary uh, teacher. The last 10 years, I've been a resource teacher from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And I my, I graduated from McGill University, uh, an excellent school. Um, but I was not really taught um, the most effective ways based on the body of research called science of reading. I never heard of the term science of reading and it's really a balanced literacy approach that I was taught. And so I was teaching for, you know, 10 years, teaching students, looking back now, not the most effective ways that, and I will get into that, but, and then when I had my uh, son and he started kindergarten, I noticed that he was having great difficulty. He's my firstborn. Um, and here in Quebec, we learned two languages. So we also thought maybe it's because he is learning a second language that he's having difficulty. So I saw some red flags, uh, not before kindergarten, because I really did not know, even though I've been teaching for quite some time in special education and as a resource teacher, I just did not know the signs of dyslexia and, uh, you know, how to help him. And we went kind of down the path of, you know, seeking speech and language um, a pathologist to do a mini evaluation. They couldn't diagnose uh, dyslexia, but they did definitely tell us these are some of the deficits he's had. But I knew in kindergarten that he had a learning disability. Mm -hmm. He had, even though I was not maybe teaching him the most effective ways at home, I was still helping him and he was struggling so much. And then at the end of grade two, we finally got him a diagnosis of a a dyslexia where he had a double deficit dyslexia. 
and a mild language disorder and inattentive ADD. So I went on a mission, like an obsessive mission to learn more about dyslexia because I really at that time thought I knew enough, but it turns out I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have kind of been on this journey about, you know, understanding learning disabilities and dyslexia. And then I decided I took a webinar one on 101 on dyslexia. And that's when I first heard about Orton Gilliam, Barton, Wilson. Um, I had never learned about the science of reading. And that was when I first heard about it, the body of research into how we learn to read. And it's been around for over 40 years. It's just, unfortunately, I was not taught that in my university program. We really were taught um, you know, you just, you know, read, have students read with each other. Um, I was not taught any phonological awareness, phonics. Mm-hmm. It was just now that looking back and it was a while ago. So um, so that was my journey. And I, I just was obsessive to learn more. And I'm thinking, you know, here I am an elementary resource teacher in special education. And I did not know this. I'm sure I'm not the only one. And how can I not only help my son, Benjamin, but how can I help the students that I've been working with for years? So, um, so that's my journey uh, into learning about the science of reading. Wow. So, so many different things there we can get into, but it is really interesting how, you know, even at these universities that are known for being good teaching schools, sometimes they just, I mean, all the elements aren't there. And what I have found to be really interesting within my state is that some universities, the departments are, some of them are on board and then you go to a different department and it's totally different and, you know, not necessarily on board with evidence-based practices. So it's definitely not always consistent, even within universities. Um, And I know that happens, you know, people have different philosophies, even within departments, but, you know, to see that there's sometimes not the alignment even from the same university, like, you know, there'll be a special education department. I, you know, I remember once a lot of those strategies that you talked about, I also, um, even though I knew about phonological awareness, you know, with my background and with a lot of the things that are considered evidence-based practice, it wasn't called science of reading back then, but it was, you know, the same elements just called something different. Um, but you know, one department, it's like, you know, I'm talking about these interventions that are being done in this school system or that school system. And I'm thinking that, oh, well, you know, everybody is saying that these are evidence-based and they're effective. And then people in my department, you know, at the same university, you know, they're, you know, they're saying, oh, no, that's not, there's, you know, such, um, limitations with the research designs that supposedly proved that those, you know, studies were, or those interventions were effective. You know, a lot of cherry picking of let's just pick the students for this study that are going to make progress so we can show our intervention is effective, even within the same university. And I think part of it for me was that there's a name of a program and it's this brand name. And then you have to really dive into what does it actually look like? And what are you actually doing with students when you're when they're struggling to read and you really have to be able to recognize what the strategies are not just within the brand names because things get rebranded all the time and you know like I'm an independent company and I have my own program but 
Um, you know, I'm citing research all the time. So people have to be able to know if somebody is teaching a program, what effective intervention looks like, or um, if they're going to support a teacher, they have to know, you know, what's going on. And, you know, how do we, how do we know that that effective intervention is happening? So I, I think where we could go now is like what, maybe just going into some of the specific programs that you were doing um, and or specific strategies and how you were taught that kids learn to read. Well, going down this path, I feel like I have way too many tabs because I just love learning. And we're really not big on programs here, yeah. uh, especially in with ELA mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, novel studies, response, um, having students read, you know, level text and it wasn't until I learned all about this, like, you know, what is an evidence-based, uh, you know, program versus research-based program. And uh, what I did was really my uh, PD, my professional development, I think that's really key for teachers. I think you yeah. can have fantastic program that I would highly recommend it's evidence-based um, or research-based, but we sometimes don't know exactly um, if we don't have that background knowledge, I think you can have the best program in your hands, but you won't be able to deliver it, I think, with fidelity and yeah. 100% if mm-hmm. you don't know what an open syllable is or the six syllable types, for example, or some of the, the rules that I'm telling you I only learned a few years ago. I'm the first one to admit, I think I was 42 when I learned the cat kite rule or the floss rule. Um and so just, I think the teacher's knowledge is number one. So I did uh, Orton-Gilliam um, training with the Orton-Gilliam Academy, and that was my first big training. And then I also did with IMSC, which is also Orton-Gilliam, where they have more programs. And then I, you know, I just did a lot of professional development, and I've also yeah. learned about UFLY just in the last uh, two years. So I think for teachers, um, you can have really a fantastic program, but it's it's really the background, like your knowledge of how the brain works in terms of learning to read. Uh, what are the five, you know, pillars? The National Reading Panel is a fantastic but very yep. thick <laughs> um, article or document, I should say. Uh, just learning about structured literacy, you know, uh, just uh, I've learned so much, and uh, I have a lot of. I'm still, you know, learning what's the best. Uh, intervention for my groups. And sometimes I will try, you know, uh, I'm in the process of trying many different things, but really it's most of the programs are based on a structured literacy approach. So they often have the same elements um, mm-hmm. that I look into. That I yeah. Use. So what were some things that like, what are some of the strategies of the interventions that were taught initially that, that you were doing, you know, that you thought like, this is, this is what I do. If a, uh, uh, if I need to support kids uh, reading, like, I guess what, a, maybe we could start off with broader principles and then talk about specific strategies. So what are some things that you were told about how kids learn to read that you found out later, you know, weren't accurate? Well, I think the number one myth for me was that reading was natural, like speaking. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that was something that, you know, children just learn through osmosis. If you just read to them and expose them to different types of books, comic books. Uh, so that was a big myth that I kind of learned about. 
and that students need to be explicitly taught. There are some, and I've heard different percentages, but about 40% of students will learn to read with very little instruction. And I've seen that firsthand in a grade one or kindergarten class where they're reading chapter books and you're like, how is this student reading so well? It's like, it blows your mind. And then you have another child who's having difficulty remembering their you know, letter sounds. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big one for me. The three cueing is something that I really, I taught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I reinforced yeah. it at home with my son as well. So, you know, looking at, you know, does it look right, sound right? I think there was one more. I even had the poster on the wall. I had those bookmarks where, you know, Skippy the Frog. So if a word is difficult, skip the word. I mean, if a student is having difficulty with nine out of 10 words, you're, you're going to encourage that child to skip every word. Yeah. Um, I've seen strategies where the last strategy was to decode or um, so just I remember holding up a book and covering the word and just showing the first letter and saying look guess that's guess what the word could be it starts with you know a, there was a picture of a horse you know on the page or look at the picture mm-hmm. so I think for our emergent readers our struggling readers this is I mean I, I would not do it with any grade but we're if we're encouraging that they are not learning to read they're not going through that process of orthographic mapping and Mm -hmm. um, that was definitely something so those were some of the aha moments that I had later on and I realized I was reinforcing my son's bad habits Um, I think Emily Hanford has a great quote like we're teaching these kids to literally read like struggling readers when we're teaching Mm -hmm. them strategies yeah I did that at home my my son was taught that at school and I reinforced that at home and I I often don't have any you know blame for any teacher because I feel like well I didn't know this I just was not taught this so that's why I'm really uh, focused on spreading awareness about not only dyslexia, but struggling students and, you know, how can teachers effectively teach um, their students. And I'm, I'm definitely, the story is not uh, unique in the sense that it often happens that a teacher has a child with dyslexia or they're struggling and then they go down this path, right? But we need every teacher to go down this path, regardless if they have a, a family member that's struggling. Yeah. I mean, I can when we're we're talking about the the strategies that are being taught. So there's the cover up the the word and just look at the first letter and guess. There's skip it and try to decode it with context. There's look at the picture. I've even heard I've seen on some of those strategies for kids ask an adult. Yes, I've seen what, that. Too. <laughs> what is that? I mean, so, you know, and again, they sound in other contexts, some of those things are appropriate, but not in this context. Like in other contexts, does it make sense for a child to go ask an adult for help? Of course. Mm-hmm. You know, you can say, oh, asking for help, it's self-advocacy. Well, that sounds like it makes sense. Or um, the context clues one is is one where you really do have to understand the um, like what your brain is doing and also just distinguish between using context to understand and give additional information about building your vocabulary versus using it to decode a word that you've, you know, never seen before or that you, where you have no strategy for actually decoding it. Because when you get 
to the older grades and you have a word and you can you can decode it, but you're not exactly sure what it means. You can look in the context and actually you know, build your vocabulary that way, but you're still decoding the word and you know, using your phonological knowledge and maybe you have some background knowledge of that word. And so that's, I think, part of where that context clue and use, you know, skip the word and guess came from. Like they, there's some situations where it is appropriate to do that, but not when you have a child who needs to actually learn how to look at the relevant information. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about, um, you know, teaching kids uh, executive functioning skills for reading, it's like, part of executive functioning is knowing where to look for information. And so when you're reading something and you come up against a challenging task, you have to think about like, where do I go? And like, what do I think about in my head to help me figure this out? And you're literally redirecting them to all this irrelevant information instead of saying, look right here. I mean, Uh it's just, it makes no sense. I mean, well, I mean, it does make sense. That's why people, or it seems like it makes sense, which is why people have been doing it. But um, so when you were in your, um, you're, you're working with students and you're using some of those strategies, like what, what kind of experiences did you have with your students with those types of, you know, those types of strategies? I mean, what would, what would you see happen with kids that you're working with just professionally? Uh, previously when I was doing the ineffective strategies or the, uh, yeah. Positive. Like what was the before and after? How did that look for you? Well, it's, it's, it hasn't been that long, I have to say, but uh, I often would work with younger students who were just learning to read. Um, I did a lot of guided reading back then, and but it included the tree cueing, a lot of memorization too of like the irregular words, and that is not very effective. Mm-hmm. That's another one. Having students memorize words, and so I, I at the time I really thought you know, I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was, you know, learning about guided reading and the three cueing. And I had all those bookmarks and the posters on my wall, but the students were still struggling. Um, You know, I, I often work with the students that were struggling. So I was reinforcing those bad habits that they were Mm -hmm. were doing. And now looking back, I, I, I like cannot believe (laughs) that I did that. I have actually a lot of guilt uh, not only as a parent, but as a teacher thinking, you know, all those students, I mean, um, but, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I, I, there are so many teachers that unfortunately just do not know this. And I don't think it's anybody's fault. It's like you said before, it's like, whatever you were taught, if I was taught this, and I was teaching at a university, this is what I would be t- teaching my my students, because this is something that I believe in, I believed it worked. Um, so it's just, it's really hard for change. I understand that, but we have to look at, you know, any profession you you want to improve and learn. And I always say that, you know, the science of reading is the body of research. It's not something that one, you know, one activity that you do, mm-hmm. um, something that I'm doing in my classroom one year might be changed next year because there'll be something, some new research out there. And so I think we have to be open to that can be a little overwhelming for sure but my advice is anybody going down this this path of learning about how the brain learns to read you know you, 
maybe just get rid of those ineffective strategies right away and then slowly incorporate and learn about, you know, how we can bring some of the research into our classroom. I think what's really interesting is that, so I was, when I was going um, in, in my graduate program, that is around the time that that national reading panel study came out. And there's been research that's expanded uh, into elements that, um, you know, were both studied in that, you know, in the, uh, the Linnea Airy study. And then also there's been components where it's, they've really looked into the morphology component in addition to phonology. So we've, we've added to things that they didn't necessarily get to. And, you know, some of the things that are different now, um, you know, we've kind of expanded our knowledge from there, but I remember talking to certain people who were um, very much, I would say that they were emotionally involved and invested, um, you know, had had devoted a lot of time, money. Um, maybe they were even working in teaching contexts where they were teaching other people these strategies that are ineffective. And I would, you know, share the national reading panel study and the response that I would get is, oh, that's propaganda. Like, I'm curious if that has ever come up for you or if you've ever experienced that in different discussion groups. Uh, well, I've heard of, you know, the reading wars all the time, yeah. or I've heard this is a pendulum swing mm. and uh, yeah, from many people saying, you know, it's just like the reading wars, you know, it's going to be a pendulum swing and we'll go back to, it'll be something new later on. Um, so I do hear that often, even from sometimes um, people who are in literacy and I, I like, you know, higher up in the sense of uh, maybe school boards or, or things like that. So I'm just sometimes surprised by that, but it's really hard for change, I think, especially when you believe in something fully, if you've done it all your your life, it's it's really difficult to let go of those, you know, those beliefs you have, right? So um, I've definitely seen that um, often, like the pendulum swing, this is just another fad or trend. Well, and it, the thing is, is that that was, so that was 2000, you know, the early 2000s when that came out and it's been expanded upon. So it's not that the pendulum has swung, it's we've bolstered it and we know even more about this, more specifics about, you know, we don't necessarily have to go in stages with some of those skills. A lot of the things that I hear from my readers is, you know, are is, is working on morphology and some of those bigger linguistic um, units, is that too hard for kids? Do we have to wait until they master the phonological component? And and no, we don't have to do it in stages. Obviously, you need to scaffold and keep that in mind. But, um, you know, that's something that's been added. So it's not like it's, oh, we're doing this and then we changed. It's we're doing this and we're continuing to build on mm -hmm. it. It's like, you know, layering bricks rather than just, you know, this, we're over here and then we're completely over here. And what I find really interesting is that some of the people who um, are in favor of, you know, the older methods have a lot of credibility and authority. Uh, maybe they have, you know, a doctorate in something. And, but the thing is, is that like, I have a doctorate and, you know, you always think I'm going to go do this training. And then after I do this training, I'm going to have it figured out. And then you do the training and you're like, wow, this is way more complex than I even realized. And I feel like 
I feel almost less competent now that I know all this other information that I wasn't doing. And I always feel like that with, with education. So I would say with, you know, you know, people who think people with doctorates have it figured out and like, we don't. Um, <laughs> so when I see people who have these degrees and they're, it's like, oh, well, they, you know, they just finished their degree and, you know, such and such, they must know what they're talking about. I'm like, well, maybe they have the other things where they really know a lot of information, but this is a very specific content area that, you know, mm -hmm. like you need, especially if you have, you know, maybe uh, a background in leadership. Um, there's a lot of other things that you need to be thinking about besides the specific aspects of the curriculum. And I don't know that people making those decisions, they might be really good with writing grants and getting funding and running teams effectively. And, you know, all of these other things that school leaders have to do, you know, the PR, but like, I mean, that's not the same thing as knowing the curriculum. And so I think that sometimes people forget all the different things that people who are making decisions have to think about that it is, we do need people like you who are in there experiencing what is actually happening to say something about it because they don't, they're not the eyes and the ears in there. Mm -hmm. It's uh, yes. I, I think, you know, sometimes I'm thinking I'm not a researcher. I, I, I am an elementary resource teacher. So bringing that research into the classroom is, you know, at times can be difficult. Um, I try and, you know, read as much as possible or listen to a webinar. And I think, yes, it's definitely, um, I, I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm teaching every day groups of students who are struggling, whether they're dyslexic or not. And, uh, you know, as I said, I completely transformed everything and I'm going to continue to transform everything if they're based on the research. So um, I try my best to, you know, share as much information because it can be overwhelming. It really mm -hmm. is. And I think teaching, I can speak for all the teachers at my school and many people I've connected with all over the world. It's really challenging. Students have a lot more, I'm going to say baggage. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's really tough. So, you know, when you're thinking, oh, I have to do this or they're shoving this down my throat now. Now I have to learn this it's a lot. It can be a lot. So I always try and just give little bits of information. And, you know, we've seen some really positive change at my school. So there's, you know, lots of talks and, oh, what are you doing? I, I, you know, so we have a few teachers this year uh, adopting a few different programs, which is completely new this year. And so I'm really excited when, you know, people from my school and I have, you know, friends in other school boards and we're just trying new things in our classroom based on the research. Yeah. So I know that we talked a little bit about this and, you know, when we had chatted before you mentioned, you know, we're not necessarily about programs and there's not always clear direction coming from the top. So sometimes it has to come from the bottom as well. So I'm curious what your experience has been with the, you know, the top-down leadership. I You've talked about how you, you had the experience from the university, but what about just in your area, what the, what the guidelines are that are coming down just, you know, with, with legal mandates and things like that, and just guidance from, from other entities? 
Well, I think it's very different here than from what I hear in the States. Like mm -hmm. we're not mandated. Um, our, our curriculum is very open, like broad. So it's a good thing in a sense that I can do what I need to do in my classroom to teach my students to to read. Like um, we have competencies that students have to to reach. Um, I, I know that at my school, I have a principal and a vice principal who are very supportive of what I'm advocating. So they've, you know, asked me to do presentations at my school. I'm going to be doing a book study with Seven Mighty Moves, um, just all different types of things to support. Like they, they, they see the students struggling. Like I, I started with, we have a problem. This is the data from our universal screening last year. This is how many students are not proficient readers from grade one to grade six. And there were lots of reds and yellows. Um, I was using a cadence last year and for the first time. Before that, I was doing PM benchmarks, which was really, you know, students would look at the picture and, you know, we would be probably cueing them all that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I thought I'd say, this, what is, this is the problem. And then we had a big meeting, like a, a staff meeting at my school, and we were going to try different, you know, reading strategies and and everybody was taking little um types of webinars or workshops that i recommended so it's been great and uh people at my school board um especially the special education consultants know that i'm very passionate about this as well mm -hmm. um and they've met, met with me and i think there's going to be some change i'm really hoping uh, we're right next to ontario uh, the other province and they have changed everything about their curriculum based on the right to read inquiry mm -hmm. um, and this has been a huge huge change for them and I'm assuming that somebody who's at the ministry level knows what's going on at you know in the province uh, next to us so I, I'm really hopeful that things are going to change and it seems to be I don't know, maybe it's because I'm in my own little science of reading world where it seems like everybody talks about it, but yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> but there, there seems to be, uh, I think, uh, a, a movement, a, a change to, to look at the research into how we learn to read. I love so. that, you know, there's a, there's a tangible way that you can go and talk to your administration. Do you think that they had any idea, like if you wouldn't have said something in that moment, like what, what would have happened? Would they have had any idea that I, I, there was anything wrong? Um, I don't think so. I mean, we always do, you know, I'm, I'm sure like most places, you know, and we have ministry exams at the end of the year for grade six and we have that data. Um, is it a universal screener? No, but they know the proficiency rates um, to some extent. So I think they knew that, you know, students were struggling, but I think it was really eye-opening when I showed them, you know, the, that pie of the percentage of students that are struggling at our school. And um, so they, they, I don't think they knew. I, I think they're the first ones to admit because I didn't know this. And I often think if it wasn't for my son, would I be talking to you today? Yeah. Would I be, uh, you know, would I be like obsessed with this? I, I really often think that I, I often say you know it's been a journey with him it's been challenging it's been a lot um and uh, I don't want to get too emotional because it really has been hard watching you know when you have a child struggle mm -hmm. and 
teacher. So I'm like, I want my kid to love school, but he doesn't really love it that much. Yeah. And, I wanted to take a quick break here to talk about Language Therapy Advanced Foundations, my program that helps speech pathologists and other language interventionists support that language strand of the reading rope. I hope that so far from listening to this conversation, you can take away the fact that explicit instruction is extremely important. And when it comes to building language and vocabulary skills, there are a lot of kids who are able to learn things implicitly. But for many students, especially the ones that end up on your caseload, they do need explicit instruction in some of those foundational language skills in order to support high-level comprehension. And I show you how to do this in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. I was inspired to create this program because of my experience as a school SLP, where I felt like I did not have a clear system and a framework that would help me to make the biggest impact that I could in just 30 to 40 minutes a week with my students. And the way to do that is to strategically focus on high leverage skills that build the foundational knowledge that kids need to support all those other skills that they need to learn, such as high-level comprehension strategies, being able to understand full paragraphs and understand the gist of what they're reading. They won't be able to do that if they struggle to comprehend at the word and sentence level. So I give you a framework for doing that efficiently and effectively in Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. Again, you can learn more about the program at drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. What happens, because sometimes administrators, and it depends on the state, um, you know, here that a lot of times if, if students aren't meeting certain benchmarks, then administrators, you know, they get a lot of pressure from, from the school boards. And so, I mean, what, what is that like uh, by you? It's very different. It, I'm always fascinated how the states uh, and every state is is different. But from the the people that I connected with that teach in the state and and what I've heard, so we we don't have those types of mandates. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to use this program, or we're adopting this program, or uh, you know, you're not your students are not reaching benchmarks. Um, you know maybe you get a, a slap on your wrist, but we, we don't have anything like that really. So it's, it's quite different. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's the, maybe there's a reason that this is happening too. <clears throat> yeah. Not too sure, but it's very different. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of people, um, I think the argument sometimes is that, oh, you're, if you, if you go too scripted with the curriculum, you're taking away people's freedom and creativity and you, yeah, you can take it too far, but I mean, at least, at least around, you know, in Illinois, the state that I'm in and a lot of the other states, it's, there's a, a big emphasis on the, um, you know, scaling and alignment across the grade level. And then also the alignment from one grade level to another. And there is a lot of that's where a lot of the administrators and curriculum directors are focused. So, 
I know that sometimes that can be frustrating for people who feel like some of their autonomy is taken away. Uh, and I do think that there's probably some kind of a middle ground there because, you know, you see the other way around where if you don't have any guidelines, then, you know, <laughs> then it's kind of a free for all or people just don't feel supported that way either because they don't like all the decisions being left up to you is it's like, um, you know, it sounds freeing, but sometimes it's actually a burden to have to come up with all these decisions without some guidance and support. 100%. I think there needs to be a, a balance, I'm going to say, yeah. uh, which is probably not what we want to say today. But um, I, I agree, because I, I think I have a lot of freedom. I mean, we still have to obviously, um, you know, teach the curriculum, but it's at least I can speak for our ELA curriculum, where there's no program that's recommended you can kind of and that was the thing I would be big borrowing stealing to make a lesson for the longest time and then when I did my Orton Gilliam training it was you know a lot of preparation finding all these different resources to make a lesson and then when I had you know for the first time you fly um, I was my mind was blown because I was like oh my gosh I have everything that I need Mm -hmm. um, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. And at the same time, for anybody who doesn't have a background, it's kind of like as you go, you're learning as well. So, mm -hmm. um, so I just find, you know, we, we need like a kind of middle ground uh, in terms of that. And I think especially when teachers are not aware of what to do or how to teach students to become proficient readers, you know, or all uh, as many students in their classroom as possible. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing too, is if you don't know how it works, then you have your curriculum, but how do you differentiate for a student who maybe needs to be pushed a little bit more or mm -hmm. needs it to be taught more explicitly? And, you know, that's the differentiation becomes really difficult if you don't really have this in-depth understanding of the material. And it's interesting because I know you mentioned that your son uh, went to a speech pathologist and I get questions from SLPs all the time. Like, can I actually make a dent in these, you know, my student needs support in literacy, they need support in vocabulary and they need support in language. And, and you absolutely can, but it's a service that, you know, it's a special education service and special education services should be delivered on top of an already robust curriculum. So it's, you know, there's no, you can't put the icing on the cake without the cake there, you know, it's, it's, um, and so I think that is part of, you know, people in those special education roles where you're, you're supplemental, but you, you can really be a strong advocate for things to be happening in the curriculum as well, because how do you think about, you know, we would say here, tier three, special education, mm -hmm. like you can't think about tier three without thinking about tiers one and two, which, you know, are in the classrooms. Exactly. I, I think that's the thing we need to, there's a few quotes out there. I can't remember them exactly, but if there's so many students that are struggling in a, a school or a classroom, I can't take everybody. Yeah. I, you know, I, there's only so many students that I can work with. So I think that's what the core classroom instruction needs to be solid like mm -hmm. you said like that, that cake or that house that foundation yeah and then I, I'm actually hoping that I will see less and less students you know over the years because there's just right now there's too many and I know that 
that's happening, you know, in the States and around the world. So I think yeah. that's the key is we got to get all teachers in every tier um, to be knowledgeable about how to to reach all students based on the research and get rid of those ineffective you know, we call them reading, reading strategies, but I can't even believe they were reading strategies. Yeah, um, I know. Students, so. so I think that's it. And, you know, if you can work with a, an SLP, I have the SLP this year who, you know, often it's more articulation, I find, mm -hmm. um, at my school, but they're also, you know, doing uh, other pieces as well for literacy. So. Yeah, it is. It is different in Canada. You know, I've I've had some SLPs go through some of my programs who who are in Canada and sometimes they have to they're like I know how you do it in the states but here's how this looks here and it is a lot you know I I know that I had one person who she she wasn't able to pull kids out for therapy she had to go in and do it in the classroom and it was like how do I how do I customize what you're doing to this model that I'm supposed to be using here and you know it's it's not, it wasn't ideal, but there was a way that we could do it. Again, if you have a solid understanding of the material and the framework, you can make adjustments when you have a less than ideal situation. And I think too, you know, part of it is that, you know, the, the special education teacher role or speech pathologist or other related service providers on the team that are providing different supports there, I think their role can look a little different where it's, you're not always pulling kids out. Sometimes you're going into a classroom. Sometimes you're coaching teachers and not saying that we're getting rid of the pulling kids out because sometimes it, that is what's necessary, but just using a variety of things so that it's not the only thing that you're using. So mm -hmm. you've mentioned some specific things you did that were very effective in like you becoming this, this leader in your building. Um, so like, what other things would you recommend to people who are on a team? They've had a similar experience to you where they were taught this strategy, or they know that a lot of people are using these strategies and a lot of kids are not making progress and something needs to change. So like what, what tangible things can people start to do if they're in that situation and they want to do something similar to what you've been able to do? Well, I think, and I, I've heard, I think Stephanie Stoller wrote something like this. You can't be telling people like what you're doing is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're going to push them against the wall. Right. You know, um, say, you know, so I think little baby steps of just, so, so that's what I did, you know, like I'm learning about the research. There's just, you know, if you have, I have an updated bookmark or a class poster uh, instead of having students, you know, guess at the picture and then, you know, kind of go down that road. Because for me, the three queuing is like number one that I often say, if there's one thing that you can do today, it's that, you know, don't encourage students to guess at a word. Um, and I often share that quote, you know, this is how we're, you know, teaching, you know, this is what struggling readers actually do. You know, my son would guess all the time and then I was reinforcing it. And then I'm like, it just it boggles my mind that that's something that I thought was a reading strategy. Mm -hmm. um, memorizing words as well. Uh, we need to have students, you know, sound out and decode. Mm -hmm. uh, have that orthographic processing where you know their their uh, you know attention to each you know how many sounds are in a word and then what is the grapheme that represents that sound and just 
playing and manipulating with the sound structure of language, I think is key. Most of the students I have have definitely a phonological deficit or just have not played with language early on. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I often do. And most of the, the lessons or programs out there that are research-based or evidence-based usually have that, like those phonological drills and, you know, using graphemes to represent those sounds. And so those are just some of the, the pieces that I've kind of said, you know, what can you do tomorrow? I'm using decodable text, but not for older students. I always think of them as training wheels mm -hmm. and for those students, for those emergent readers, for those struggling readers and using a scope and sequence, explicit, I do, we do, you do, mm -hmm. are, are all types of different strategies. So those are just a few that I would probably say, you know, please stop or or start looking into, you know, what does explicit instruction look like? What is the scope and sequence? I'm not going to introduce digraphs to my students before, you know, making sure that they know their short vowels and their, their you know, consonants. Mm -hmm. so those are just a few. Are there things about, and I'm thinking of guided reading because I know that's done a lot, where there are certain aspects of it where there's there's obviously things if you're if you're teaching kids to guess words that you know that's not something that's going to be helpful to them are there pieces of it that could be helpful for kids who are beyond and ready to work on comprehension or things about that format that we can keep and apply for the kids who are ready and who have those skills and they are ready to move on to more of the you know focusing on the comprehension I think so. I think, you know, you know, you don't throw the baby out with the bath mm -hmm. water. You're, there's definitely things that we're doing that are actually, you know, great. We're, we're teaching students to read, but there's definitely, we're not reaching all of our students in our classroom. Those, you know, those students who are just pick up reading very easily. And yes, you're not going to, anybody who's a proficient reader or, or you know, just keep on proving, you're not going to give them a decodable text or a controlled text. Uh, I think guided reading can work for those students that you are going to work on, you know, background knowledge mm -hmm. and morphology and getting into like more complex multisyllabic words, for example. But I think for me, when I was doing guided reading, I was taking the, the weakest students since I work with them and giving them leveled readers and, you know, saying that this is the level that you're at. We're going to try and get to the next level. But yet most of the words in the story, they could not read or even sound out and just using those three the the three cueing was something that was very uh something that I did a lot you know how, these are the irregular words that we're reading and we have to memorize them English doesn't make sense and um so I think there's definitely some things that I mean I, I still think people are doing guided reading I'm just saying that there's better more effective ways to work with your small groups uh, especially those students who are struggling. Yeah. What is a quick synopsis of how a, a guided reading lesson would look? Like if you kind of just walk somebody through it at a high level. Well, I would do, I, I would get my leveled reader. This is the group that I, they're in, you know, level A, for example, or level B based mm -hmm. on, you know, I did a PM benchmark. I see that they're at this level. And then I would have my group, I give them a book, and then we would do the round robin where mm -hmm. each student would read 
And, you know, that was something that, and there's, you know, not a lot of uh, great evidence, I guess, or research out there of how effective round robin is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we think about it, you have six students or five students and each student is reading. They're not reading a lot. Most of the times I had to get them back on track or mm-hmm. close to your place. And so that that's how I guided reading back then. And then we would, you know, practice memorizing those, those sight words in the text as well. And then ask, you know, some comprehension questions at the end, which is not a bad thing, but right. Yeah. We definitely have to. That's the whole point of reading is the reading comprehension and uh, the simple view. And that's our end goal. Um, so that's what I did. But I noticed that many students were struggling. They would obviously look at the picture because that is something that I encouraged or guessed based mm-hmm. on the first. So there wasn't really a lot of, I'm sure if I filmed myself back then versus now, it's it's completely different. I, I was just not teaching them to, I don't even know if I said sound it out or try and decode I hope I did, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely um, wasn't the most effective way to teach the struggling students how to read. Yeah. So with all those other strategies, is that something where people are kind of just pulling in, you know, you're doing this guided reading lesson and this, this student is struggling on this word, and then you're just kind of pulling one of those strategies out as you, as you see it's appropriate. And when students are not getting the word. Yeah. Or I would help them right away. There was no like Mm -hmm. struggling. Like, okay, this word is, uh, they they didn't, they didn't even, uh, maybe, you know, they said, I don't know how to read that. And I would just say the word Mm -hmm. or look at the picture and encourage all those, those uh, ineffective reading habits. Is that something that is a a feature of guided reading is those cueing strategies, or is it just kind of like figure out how to help students as you go with that first general format that you said? Uh, well, for me, there was a book. I don't know if I want to mention the book, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't have we don't have to mention names. But <laughs> There's a book that is a very popular book, and in it, it encourages those strategies. So okay. that was the book that I used. I I really considered myself a reading guided, you know, guided reading guru back then. I really had it down packed. I felt at the time, and so I, I did that. And I was also, you know just was taught um those are the ways to to teach students how to read Mm -hmm. I ask because I know that there is the you know whenever there's something like that there's here's the protocol here's how we do it and then I know that sometimes as it gets spread around and implemented different ways sometimes people put their own spin on it or they layer in other strategies so I'm just curious if that's typically how people how you have seen people do it with is just that this is something that is actually encouraged within this format. Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the one book that I'm thinking of definitely encouraged that. And I actually looked at it. I still have it. Uh, I wanted to see it and uh, it, it did encourage a lot of those, uh, those strategies that are just not effective. So, mm-hmm. so what does, if we do before and after, what would a reading group look like for you now? Well, right now it would be, I, it's, it's like a 180. I, and sometimes when people say, oh, you know, like, is there really a big difference? It's a mm-hmm. huge difference. I think it's also, you know, I have done a lot of professional development from many different types of, you know, webinars, programs, and just, it, it's completely different. So I have a scope and sequence now. Um, I do universal screeners first. 
and then to see which students are struggling. And then I do diagnostics to figure out what are the skills that they're missing. And then I group my students, not based on a level anymore, mm -hmm. of level B or C or D. Um, because if you look at those books from, you know, level yeah. A to level F, they're, <laughs> I, I don't know how, I think it's based on how many words sometimes. I looked into it not that long ago. And there's just no rhyme and reason for for the level books, at least the ones that I looked at. Yeah, and it doesn't give you a lot of descriptive information. I mean, no. I used to um, actually in one of my programs that I where I'm like, here's, you know, classroom data. I, I did have something where I'm like, OK, part of it is reading level. And I would still write that down. I mean, you can write it down. It's not really telling you a lot, though. <laughs> you know, like you can document it on your report, but. You, you probably should have a lot of other information if you want to actually know what to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, I know. I would group my students in my guided reading based on the level of book that they could read. And then, um, so with my groups now, I do, after my diagnostics, figuring out, you know, do they know their short vowels? Are they having difficulty with their long vowels? Uh, do they know their consonants? Uh, I base my groups on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then I look at, you know, what kind of scope and sequence are they at? Are they at short vowels? And I follow, there's so many different scopes and sequences out there, but most of them I find are quite similar. And so it's really explicit. I, there's no just saying, okay, this is the, okay, I'm going to teach you the C, the letter C today, and it makes the K sound. And that was pretty much it. It was, you know, let's practice reading a little bit, uh, you know, some words with the sound, you know, and they would ask probably like, you know, when do I use the C or K or CK? And I, I would not be able to answer that 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I would just say English is crazy. doesn't make sense. And, and, and that was it. And so it's really explicit. Like now it's like, okay, you know, we use a C, you know, there's the cat kite rule. We watch, you know, videos. Uh, it's very multi-sensory as well approach. Um, we do like, um, I would start my lesson with phonological drills just for like one minute where we're actually manipulating, playing with the sound structure of language, you know, say cupcake, now say cupcake, but not cup and mm -hmm. building yeah. on, you know, from very basic to more complex. Um, then I would go into, you know, a visual drill where I'm only introducing the concepts that, you know, I, I'm teaching and we move very slowly. Um, so just, you, you know, showing a card here, but, um, you know, what sound does it make? And, and, you know, this is the A, it makes an A sound. Going into really specifics, I even have a sound wall, which I know there's not a lot of research on sound walls right now. But I, I just feel that this is something that I find it takes it to the next level of, we have a lot of students with articulation issues. Mm -hmm. So I would, I, I even have mirrors in my classroom for students to look at so we can see how, I mean, now with, thank goodness, no more masks, but, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you know, this is, you know, I have often kids will walk into my room and why do you have masks on your wall? And, um, you know, so we unlock the sound that we're learning and it's just, taking it to the next level and really modeling like I do, we do, you do. Um, we do auditory drills as well, where I say the sound and they have to, in some type of multi-sensory format, you know, write the letter that represents that sound using 
a controlled text or a decodable text only based on the concepts that I've taught. So they're practicing that. We do word work in UFLY also where they're manipulating and playing with the sound structure or language, but based only on our scope and sequence. So it's really, um, you know, there is a, a lesson and I follow it to a T uh, with fidelity. I'm trying to do a better job this year. And so that's how it's completely different. It's just, there's no guessing anymore of, you know, or saying that this doesn't make sense. Um, I'm probably missing a few components of my lesson. Yeah. So it sounds but, like a lot of those things that you're saying are at the, there's at the linguistic unit level, there's sounds, there's word parts, there is the word level. And then do you get, do you do sentence level and paragraph level work too? Is that part of the lesson eventually? Uh, sentence level. Yes. Yeah. So we're practicing dictation as well. So mm -hmm. they're practicing, you know, whatever the concept we're, we're working on. Um, I, I do have them do some dictation of words and sentences as well. I try and because we're learning two languages, sometimes my students have three languages. I, in the past, I would take for granted that they knew what a, a simple word was. And then they would say, what does that mean, miss? And I'm in my head going, okay, you don't know what this word means. Then you don't know almost every other word that I'm saying right now. Yeah. So I also, uh, vocabulary is something that I'm learning a lot about too, and yeah. background knowledge. And so that is something that I, every time we're writing a word, we talk about that word. What does that word you know mean? It does it couldn't mean many different things. So it's just extremely explicitly teaching I mean everything uh, the vocabulary the scope and sequence you know is it voiced on voiced off mm -hmm. I never did any of this so it is uh, completely different than what I taught you know just maybe five six years ago yeah that was I think that's really helpful to just even walk through the differences in in lessons because people are talking about these programs and these broader concepts and I see that even in, in the clinical world where it's, oh, does this program work? Or, you know, this isn't research-based. And my question is always, well, walk me through what you're actually doing. Because sometimes if there is something newer where there might be some case study evidence for something, maybe there's a piece of that intervention that, you know, has some research to support it and we could build on it. Or maybe once you actually do that, you realize, oh, this is uh, something that has been proven to be ineffective. So I think a lot of times just even getting down to the specifics of what's happening is is really helpful for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was, I was that person. I like, well, what does effective instruction look like? I, I had no clue until, you know, I took, you know, a few different courses and my eyes were like, it's almost like, you know, like an aha moment of going, mm -hmm. okay, this is what it looks like. And there's so much, you know, information out there, uh, which is wonderful, can be a little overwhelming, as I mentioned before, but uh, there's some fantastic webinars and workshops that anybody can take. It's just, it's time, you know, it's time for teachers yeah. to, you know, to learn. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on here and sharing your story because I do think there's a lot of people who are very frustrated, who feel like they can't, you know, it's not coming from the top, so they're not able to do anything about it. And, you know, you're showing that you've been able to really make some change and kind of emerge as somebody in a leadership role in your building 
just from all the work that you've done and your own things that you've gone through and what you've learned. So I think that is really encouraging and inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So where can people go to connect with you and learn about just how they can learn some of the things that, that you've been able to learn, or even just, I know you have some, some side projects that you're working on in the advocacy space. Yes. So I started a decoding dyslexia Quebec. It's a grassroots movement that was started in the States. There's one in every state. Uh, I believe there's in seven provinces now. And I know in the States, some of them are like, you know, changing legislation, like doing amazing, Mm -hmm. incredible things that I I hope to do one day. But right now I can only manage a Facebook page. But it was really because, uh, again, I thought, if I don't know this, how are parents going to be able to navigate this journey of helping their child? So I started a Facebook page sharing resources and information. And uh, I also ha- I am on you know social media. I, I I do think it's a positive thing. I've met some incredible people like you, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. But I do have an Instagram uh, page called Soar with Dyslexia. It's the play okay. on words, science of reading and dyslexia. And I really the main goal of it is just to spread awareness about how to help s- struggling students and you know parents and teachers so I often post videos I often post quotes about the science of reading and uh, literacy I try and put practical ideas too uh, it's not always related to you know literacy like you know I do organize I like how to organize your student materials mm-hmm. things like yeah that. Uh, but most of it it's it's about uh, spreading awareness and I love sharing resources I, I think I'm I am a resource teacher and I love sharing resources. Most of them are always free because I just find as teachers, uh, I know I can, I have a lot of Amazon boxes coming to my house almost (laughs) daily. And I I spend a lot of my own money on resources and materials. And I just, I just want to share as much as possible with, with uh, people. So. So it's for parents or, or professionals, both of them? Yes. Parents and teachers, I think, are my biggest um, yeah. following. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, like the other day, I just shared Misconception Mondays about, you know, dyslexia and sharing, you know, um, a kind of a checklist for, you know, parents or teachers of, mm-hmm. you know, the different uh, stages and what are the signs of dyslexia in preschool and grade one and things like that. So mm-hmm. that's it. Well, I think I think the uh, the other members of the team, the the you know the clinicians, obviously that are responsible for providing the supplemental interventions, in addition to the special ed teachers. I know you know the special ed teacher is part of that team, but also the people making the decisions and the administrators. I think they need to hear this too. So, I hope that you get some more people following your your pages after this interview. Yes, I do actually have a lot of SLPs that follow me too, so it's yeah. great. But. Uh... Yeah, it's just to, to to spread more awareness, as I mentioned. Well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing and for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to check the show notes for all the places that you can go to connect with Melanie. And also, if you want to learn 
strategies that can support the language strand of the reading rope that can help you to create an effective language therapy system, definitely check out Language Therapy Advanced Foundations. To learn more about the program, you can go to drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. As always, it helps me so much if you share this episode with your friends and your colleagues, especially with this episode, if you have colleagues who need to learn about effective reading practices and you want to spread the word. This is just such important information that needs to be out there. So definitely share this with your friends and also rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a suggestion for a guest, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.